You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 75 is Nick Salomon. He's been making music since the late 60s, but his recording career began in earnest in 1987 when he started releasing albums under the band name The Bevis Frond. And he has since released 22 Bevis Frond albums. You are right now listening to He'd Be a Diamond from 1991's New River Head, which is one of the first ones he did in a studio with other musicians. Before that, he just recorded all the tracks by himself. Today, we're going to be talking about Long Ships from his most recent album, 2015's Example 22, then going to the previous album, 2013's White Numbers, to talk about ophthalmic microdots. Then we're going to look all the way back to 1992's London Stone album. The song is called Coming Round. And we'll finish up by listening to Portobello Man, a song from the album Valedictory Songs from 2000. You can hear all of his albums, plus a few pre-Bevis Frond recordings, streaming and for purchase at bevisfrond.bandcamp.com. For more information about this podcast, check out nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And if you enjoy at all what we're doing here, please go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic and pledge your support. So I will have played a little bit of He'd Be a Diamond from New Riverhead 1991, your most covered song, I guess. <laughs> I had picked as an example of your recent work, Long Ships from Example 22. You had said in another interview that you thought that one came together particularly well. I thought that was a great example of one of your very tight birdsy, concise pop songs. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it, it kind of just fell into place. You know, it's one of those ones where you sing, strumming away, and it just kind of comes along and you go, oh, that's nice. I spend a lot of time playing the guitar and singing gibberish, and then something hopefully comes out of that. And when something does, mostly it gets thrown in the dustbin because it's not very good. But occasionally you get something that after you've heard it a few times, you still like it, and then it's a contender, you know? And before we play it in full, do you have any introductory words about where you're at at this particular album? Oh, well, I mean, that came out a couple of years ago. I'm actually on the verge of recording a new one. So I haven't really been thinking about Example 22 for a year or so because I've been busily accumulating new material and getting studios booked and doing demos and stuff like that. Is it a pretty continuous process? I know you had a seven-year gap there, but... <laughs> It is. I just, I don't know what it was. You know, I've been doing an album a year for, I don't know, nearly 20 years. And we've been doing a lot of gigging and touring. And I just got to the point where I was feeling a bit jaded. You know, I wasn't really having much fun. And I was thinking I need a break from this because I've been doing it too long. I never intended it to be a final break, you know, but I just thought I need a year or two. Just take it easy, you know, recharge the batteries and start writing better material because I felt that the material was suffering. And I thought if I didn't, enjoy it then it wasn't going to come through very well and I thought well, I'll just take a bit of time out until I feel more inclined and then a load of things happened at the same time that my wife retired from work and my mum was dying of terminal cancer and I had to be the executor and sell her house and then we decided to move from London where I've lived all, nearly all my life and once we were settled in down in Hastings and most things have been put to bed. I kind of felt a bit more like, yeah, I think I feel like doing some music again. And so it's back on track. So by example 22, now then you're three albums back in. And I should say that three albums for you is probably at least five albums for other people in terms of the number of songs and the amount of effort. Well, yeah, yeah. There's always a lot of material on my albums because I write so much stuff. 
And I always kind of worry about quality control, you know, and I always kind of think, well, do I put too much on? Because some of it, inevitably, people are going to go, well, that one's not as good as that one. And in the end, I think, well, who cares? You know, I'm doing it for myself, really. Obviously, if people buy my records, I want them to enjoy it and think that they get a good deal and all the rest of it, you know. So I do consider the... (laughs) the listening people, you know, but uh, really, you know, I want to do something that I'm happy with. But I do understand that sometimes there's a bit much, but what else am I going to do? You know, if I'm writing all these songs and I think they're quite good, you know, then they might as well come out. Yes, I'm very much in the included all (laughs) category. Well, I I don't, you know, I mean, what I actually put out is probably a minimal amount of what I actually write. I mean, for the new album, I'm going to take 20 songs into the studio and see how it works out. But that's 20 out of probably 250 that I've written in the last couple of years. And most of it just goes in the bin or I kind of record an acoustic demo and listen to it back a few times and go, nah, that's not good enough. So, you know, I have got a bit of quality control. It's just that there's quite a lot of it. (laughs) All right. Well, let's hear long ships that rose to the top of that pile.
Can we talk a little bit about it thematically? Now, it's fine if you don't know what these mean. <laughs> no, I know what that one means. Okay. So I was kind of musing on xenophobia, really, you know, about taking it back, right, you know, with people coming over and seen as invaders or whatever, and whether it's some good, some bad, some indifferent, you know, and it was going back in the British history, you got the Viking invaders and, so, you know, that's really what it was about. It's a bit of an oblique angle on it, but that was just a kind of like, well, it's neither, you know, to my mind, I've got, you know, I can't really complain about people coming into a country because my antecedent, my dad was a refugee from Europe when in the war came over to England in 1939. So I've got to be in favor of it, really. That interpretation makes a lot more sense to me than what I was... I was just reading this as personal in terms of self-defense or something, and you've got things like the save your mortal soul if you can, be a man. <laughs> yeah, it was just kind of what you hear people saying and and the way you kind of look at certain situations. I mean, a lot of the stuff that, without getting too up myself, but I mean, we are talking about my writing, so I might as well get a bit up myself. A lot of the stuff that I write, the songs, I kind of try and put a personal feel on them so that when they kind of have a ring of honesty about them, but they're often, you know, just observations of stuff going on. And it's not actually, I suppose there's quite a bit of what I think and how I feel, but they're not really that personal, you know, unless they are, of course. Well, yeah, if you're producing at that volume, I can't imagine that... (laughs) You'd have to have a very emotionally busy life or just resort to reporting on the very least, you know, pimple on your ass to to come up with something. <laughs> you really don't want to know about that. I, <laughs> I recall hearing an interview with Neil Young saying, oh, yeah, I, I write a song every day, you know, and I thought that was a, clearly an exaggeration. But, you know, if that is your craft and you at least sit down every day and try to produce something, it might not become a whole song. I don't think I write a song every day, you know. I, I definitely sit down and play the guitar pretty much every day, but I do it in a kind of way that someone will come in from work and have a drink or have a cigarette or something or do the crossword, you know. I kind of sit down with a guitar and it's I don't even think about it. It's like a kind of reflex action and you're just strumming away nonsensically and I find it kind of relaxing and you kind of go, yeah, this is sit down and have a half an hour of a little play and that's nice, you know. And I suppose that I'm always kind of putting little chord sequences together and while I'm doing it I'm just humming with it or singing little disconnected lines that me that are coming out of my head you know and then once in a while you get a little riff going or a few lines that you think well that's quite nice and then you kind of start maybe trying to write a song together but it only kind of happens when it happens you know so I'll I'll play the guitar every day but sometimes I get in a roll and I'll write two or three songs in a day and then I won't write another one for a month and do they tend to bunch up by style or do you tend to purposefully like okay I just had one that's in the birds column now I'm going to do one that's in the Hendrix column you know even if it's not an intentional no I never kind of try to you know the only way that I might do something like that is if I've been driving around listening to something in the car and you kind of listen to a certain album and go, wow, that is so good. And you get home and I kind of subliminally write my version of it without really meaning to. But generally speaking, I'm just kind of twiddling around on the guitar and what comes out comes out. And if it doesn't happen, then I don't worry about it. And if it does happen, it's what comes out and it might be acoustic, quiet, it might be rocking. I, I don't know. It just depends, doesn't it, how you're feeling at the time or what sounds good, you know? So for something like this, with the main head that... Would that be kind of the first thing that comes to mind, or is it the strumming and singing and then, oh, I need a uh, a little capper? It's almost always just 
randomly strumming a guitar and singing nonsense with it. That's kind of my process, really. It's not really a process, is it? You know, but you sit down with the guitar, you strum away without even thinking about writing a song, or and you're just kind of playing chords. And you, I even kind of find myself sending myself to sleep, which I hope doesn't apply to my audience, but. You know, I'll be sitting there with a the guitar and I'll strumming away and the next thing I know, I'll be fast asleep, you know, because it's really nice and relaxing. But then, you know, occasionally you get a little few chords that sound nice together and you've been kind of humming a melody line and it kind of all fits. So I guess I tend to write the music before I do the words, really. I'll, I'll have an f- idea, you know, I'll get a few words, but the music kind of dictates the way that the words fit because it's I find it easier to put lyrics to music than music to lyrics. So if you're putting lyrics to music, does that mean that you have a recording on a scratch thing with so you've got the melody with nonsense words down somehow? I'll just be doing it repeatedly, you know, it drives my wife mental, you know, but I'll be sitting there playing the same thing over and over again. I mean it doesn't last long, you know, I'll write a song, it'll take me under an hour to finish a song, you know, but I'll be repeating it, going around, getting it in my head. And, you know, I'll probably have a few words, but then the actual kind of, you're just crafting a few bits so that it scans properly and the syllables fit the tune so that you haven't got an extra, you know, and I I try very hard to make it so that it's almost like conversational lyrics that you'd, I hate it if, if people invert sentences like, you know, my love I would give and all that kind of stuff, you know, to you, I will come, you know, and you think, oh, what, what rubbish, you know. And you, So I try and make it sound like you can almost speak the words and it sounds very natural spoken. So I make an effort to do that. I do like a good rhyme and I try to make them a bit interesting so that they're not the usual old tosher about, you know, baby, I miss you or I'm going down the highway or something like that. So I don't usually write about that kind of stuff because everyone else does it and it's just a bit boring, you know. The lead lick again would that kind of come out at the same time then as the final melody as a you know a thing to just put between them so you're kind of singing that while you're courting on long ships itself it was basically the chord sequence just the song itself just the chord sequence of the song with a few words and then you built the words around it and then the little kind of guitar lick at the beginning you know with the kind of jangly where I'm hammering on that would have been added at the end because you know I thought well it needs something here and just find something that suits it you know that kind of nice little major key going from if you're in D you're going kind of E to F sharp on a hammer on that's really comes at the end but the chord sequence would be the first thing followed by lyrics and then the little ornamentation around that but not that there is much of it because you know it's pretty basic really you know I'm not like I don't smother it in everything you know I kind of it stands up as, as a song and it doesn't really need all the frills you know <laughs> well and if you're recording with a band in a studio you don't bother to demo with drums and that kind of stuff right yeah I do I do I've, I've got a studio in my basement with a drum kit and and so I will go down there and do a very rough demo of how I basically hear it in my head I mean I wouldn't dream of telling my drummer how to play drums because he's a proper drummer and I'm a, not what I'm doing is just saying, well, look, this is what I hear. Now you do it properly, you know? I had mentioned the birds before. This is sort of a, in, in the generally birdsy category. I noticed it specifically, so you've got the jangling arpeggio part, but then also have the rhythm joining the snare drum, basically, which is exactly what the David Crosby thing. I mean, I've got to say, you know, whatever you hear on the drums is pretty much down to Dave Pierce, who's the drummer. If you listen to the demo of that, with me playing drums, it just sounds like someone pushing a cupboard down a staircase, but it kind of a bit in rhythm. It's just a matter of how much time you were taking with it. The difference between the older albums where you were recording everything yourself 
versus when you're just demoing now? I mean, that was a different process, really. I, I was doing it all on my own and kind of finding my way. I was working on a four-track porter studio and bouncing all the various overdubs down. And, you know, I would, when, I, when I say, you know, my, my drumming is pretty limited, you know, but it, I could keep rhythm and do a few rolls, but not much. So really, as soon as I had a bit more, I mean, it was only kind of financial that I was doing it all on my own because I didn't have any money and I couldn't afford to kind of rent studios out. So it was much easier to just go up to my bedroom and record it all myself because, you know, I didn't really have a band and I didn't have money to spend on recording. So it was just necessity, really. But I do kind of like working alone anyhow, you know. I mean, when we go in the studio with the band, I mean, it sounds much better. So I'm, it's a kind of call because I think that the result will work out better if I've got people who are actually good at what they do instead of me doing it. So they've heard the demo, and you walk in with the band. This performance, like, is this the third run through? <laughs> How long are you actually spending with the band? I'll give them the demo. Say, right, here we go. This is what I want to do in the studio. Work out your version of it so that you know it sounds better than mine. But then we'll go in the studio, put the backing tracks down. It'll probably take a couple of days. Maybe do about you know eight songs, nine songs a day as a backing track. You know, which will be drums, bass, two guitars and a guide vocal. That would take two, three at the outside days to do. And I'll start working on the overdubs, which then Adrian, who plays bass, and Dave, who's the drummer, won't be there unless they want to hang out. But they don't, you know, once they've done the backing tracks, that's them kind of finished in the studio, you know, unless they want to come and do stuff, but they don't. And then it'll just be me and Paul doing overdubs, a bit of guitar, a bit of keyboard, and then do the vocals properly, and that's it. You know, and it should take from start to finish probably about nine or ten days to a finished product. So the guitar solo, I think, is one of the really distinctive things about your guitar solo is this kind of shadow guitar behind the guitar. You know, that there's often multiple guitars playing the guitar solo. used to do that quite a lot you know i've always been a fan of certain guitarists you know i loved hendrix and randy california and people like that and if you listen to things like downer on captain copter by uh, randy california you know there's multiple guitars going off left right and center and he's doing it and I, I suppose that was kind of a bit of an influence there and hendrix you know you he used to have kind of different guitars coming in and out you know he's obviously played maybe half a dozen solos and then kind of mixed them all together and you know that was kind of I suppose in my mind, although I wasn't actually consciously trying to copy them, but, you know, I mean, I suppose, you know, what you sound like is a result of what you like listening to. Let's get the second song out, Ophthalmic Microdots from White Numbers 2013, the one right before this. So you're saying you don't know what this one's about. Well, I probably (laughs) do, but I've forgotten. That's the trouble when you write loads of songs, you kind of, my abiding memory of that is that I've spelled ophthalmic wrong. So that's quite annoying. I left an H out because it's actually O-P-H, thalmic. It's off-thalmic, and I put op-thalmic, so that's a bit annoying. How many people will notice that? I think people will tolerate it. (laughs) Everybody that tries to look it up and see exactly (laughs) what you're talking about. (laughs) It is definitely O-P-H, and I just wrote O-P. It's an intentional artistic choice. I'll stand by that. Do you have any, just before we play the song in full, so this is another, I guess, roughly in the birds category. I don't think this is so birdsy, no. I, th- I think long ships, you can, what you're really talking about with when you're saying the birds, it's, it's kind of major key, kind of um, nice chord structures, and you're stuck in a kind of couple of little minor chords here and there, but it's a major key song with a kind of quite a jangly guitar sound, and I don't think Ophthalmic Microdots is quite like that. I think it's a more minor key song, and there's a bit of keyboards in it, if I remember rightly. 
I didn't see that as one of my Birdian things at all. I just thought it's just a song, really. Sure. Actually, when I say that, it's because I have in mind, like, Here Without You and Eight Miles High, like the kind of eerie Gene Clark, more deliberate. The more spacey stuff, you know, like things like on Notorious Bird Brothers, you know, like Tribal Gathering and stuff. It's kind of more like the Crosby stuff if you're going to kind of keep the birds reference going. You know, there are some that I listen to and go, well, there's definitely a bird's influence in that one. But ophthalmic microdots certainly wasn't, not knowingly, anyhow. I picked this one partly because I wanted one of them that had a little more slightly adventurous chord progression. It's not crazy. There's not, you know, ninths and thirteenths all over the place. Well, there could be, you know. I mean, if, <laughs> I mean, I can do them, you know. It seems like a fairly small percentage of them, that is the thing, that now we're doing some unexpected thing with the, the chords. This one is very 
deliberate and structured. I mean, the fact that there's no, right, there's no guitar solo even. Oh, there, there you go. That is weird, isn't it? <laughs> For me, I can't, I find it hard to not do a guitar solo in a song. So that was, shows great restraint on my behalf. We have this intro here, which ends up being the thing that is answering every single line of the verse. This. It brought to mind White Room for some reason. I was looking that up. It's not actually particularly similar to that, but just that sort of dramatic. Well, that's a great song. You know, one of the things that I always kind of bear in mind is, you know, I make a point of trying not to copy people, but inevitably there's only eight notes in a scale or 12 if you're counting. But you get certain things are going to sound like other things. And especially if you're a music fan and you're an old git like I am, you know, then it kind of, there's definitely touchstones where you can kind of go, oh yes, I can hear he was listening to this. And I can't really deny it, I suppose, but it's never intentional, I don't think. I just make these references because this is kind of how I, I categorize gestures. Like, what are you doing at the beginning of the song? Well, I'm going to start with a big, dum, dum, you know, that's somewhat operatic, but this one is actually fairly calm. You know, it's just, it's not an obvious way to start a song. No, that's, that's true. You know, occasionally I, I do kind of stray off the kind of normal path a bit. Not very far. I'm not very experimental, really. So in this kind of thing, I know this is a little, little while ago that, like, would that, that main riff be the kind of touchstone to start the song? Or again, would it be coming up with the chord progression and the fact that, you know, after you sing the line, then you play that thing, you play that two chord thing. Well, let's go ahead and make that the intro as well. So that becomes an afterthought. What you hear on on it would be pretty much what I've been just strumming about at home, you know, but then you kind of, as I say, it's a kind of refining process. You get the kind of bones of it when you're sitting down with an acoustic. And then once you've got to the point where you think, yeah, actually this is worth pursuing because it actually sounds quite good to me anyhow, then I kind of spend a bit more time working on it and structuring it out a bit. But then I guess most of it comes, you know, it's pretty much already there, you know, but you're just kind of putting it into place and constructing it so that it sounds natural, really. Well, natural, or in this case, interestingly unnatural. Some of the the gaps that you have in the phrasing, I I really liked, you know, (laughs) like piss holes in the snow fall. Yes, well, on this one, I'm a bit kind of in the dark because I actually don't really remember much about it and I couldn't find a copy to listen to because I give all my copies away and I can't actually find a copy of white numbers at the moment because so I must have one I'll have to borrow it off my daughter or something the thing that seems that keeps it rock here the bass is very nice and bouncy I mean the whole rhythm section which again I was kind of thinking as a as a bird's thing is that often the guitars on those slow songs are very baroque that it's very kind of a pretty precise way of walking through the progression and it's the fact that there's bass that's kind of sliding around and it just makes it a little gives it the extra chemistry this like the other one you're doing this with the rhythm tracks live right yeah definitely yeah that i do remember on white numbers all the backing tracks were done in one hit really i think it took us two days to do the backing tracks of that we just went in did them you know work right through them like right one done next one done and it was just pretty much everything's first, second, probably three takes at the most. Well, then I guess I know the answer to the next question, which is this organ that you overdubbed, which adds so much to the sound of the song. So it has a little tremolo effect on it. And I was, I was listening closely to that. Like, is that the kind of thing you would pay attention to the tempo at which the organ is tremoloing and trying to match that to the side? <laughs> I would try to, you know, I did a song on an album some time ago called Through the Hedge on Hit Squad, and and that had a tremolo effect on the guitar. And the tremolo 
machine that I was using, you couldn't quite sync it up to the rhythm. You know, it kept kind of either going a bit too fast or a bit too slow. And it, and it was quite a long song. This was about eight, nine minutes long. So after about two or three minutes, you'd find that the tremolo wasn't quite in tune with the rhythm track. So I had my mate Mark Burgess in that track. He came into the studio and he lay on the floor with the speed knob turning it slightly <laughs> faster, slightly slower, just to keep it in time with the drums, you know. So I did actually try to make it so that it was in time. Okay. So yes, the same would apply with this, yeah. So that is the, actually the opposite answer that I, to what I was expecting in terms of if you're just, yeah, let's just get be natural, get it out there. No, I'm actually going to have somebody come in and lie on the floor to make sure this is precise. <laughs> in the way that- well, it's basically, I just wanted to see Mark lying on the floor, really. In this case, the tremble is mostly on, but it's a little, I mean, it's not that obvious. It's not like you have a big delay effect or something that's causing an echo. When we did this one, I can remember this, that the keyboard sounds on white numbers. I, I usually, what I've got at home, I've got a load of old keyboards. And I go to the studio and use it, and they've got keyboards there as well. So I would have been using their keyboards because I didn't, couldn't be bothered to carry all my stuff out, and you can recreate most of the sounds anyhow. So it, probably I was using a, a machine that I wasn't that familiar with, and it was going through banks of effects and stuff built in. And I'm going to blame it entirely on Dave Palmer, who co-produced it, because he was doing all that. So it's his fault. Well, let's get the third song out there. Going back in time quite a bit, coming round from London Stone, 1992. And I was uh, very happy that you had put as a bonus track on the reissue of that, the demo of this as well. So I could see, you know, you by yourself doing this with perfectly competent rhythm section, though much heavier actually than the final version, but quite a bit shorter than what we're going to hear. I really like the demo of that. I think it came out very nicely, you know. We're going to play the full version, so this is nearly eight minutes long, just to warn people. It's not like there's a a lot more musically, there's not a lot more elements. This is not a rock opera. (laughs) This is basically like long ships, but it's just a little more deliberate, and the guitar solo is quite long by itself, Yeah, (laughs) which I love. It's it's an inimitable part of your style. Do you have any comments about where you were at with the London Stone album? So this is only... A couple into playing with the full band here? On London Stone, Martin was still drumming for me, Martin Crowley, who I'd known for many years, and he he was like the first drummer. When we started gigging, Martin was the drummer, and he appeared on uh, New River Head and London Stone. Unfortunately, Martin died a few years ago. He was only 49. When I first met him, I was playing in a band called Room 13, and, and this would have been about 1981, and we had a residency in Great Portland Street in London, and Martin, who was at that time was about... 17 had a blue mohican and clash city rockers tattooed on his arm and he came down and he kind of really liked what we were doing which was some a bit of a surprise but he turned out to be a fantastic drummer and he was almost like a savant drummer because he had never done any lessons but he sat down and he was fantastic so he did the first studio albums that i did with you know when i actually went into a studio and used people to play with me martin was brilliant but he was a motorbike messenger in london and about 15 years before he died he had a terrible accident where he got crushed between two buses and he was really badly injured he you know he could never walk properly again and he got septicemia and it took him 15 years to die because they couldn't clear it up so about it must be about two or three years ago i went to his funeral which was a very distressing situation but it was fantastic and yeah I, i wanted to get him on this because of his drumming ability really 
Man, well, that sets the the mood for the song very very well. Actually, that story.
I think this is an element that people often latch onto from your music or, you know, from this particular era that it's, it's fairly depressing <laughs> in a certain way. You know, it's, it's why I like who's, who's do so much. <laughs> well, well, I thought coming around is actually kind of upbeat song, really. I guess the chorus gets nice and the, and the theme, although I couldn't quite figure out what you were figuring out, that it seems like it's purposefully ambiguous. But then, you know, by the second verse, you're talking about, I didn't understand it all. I come from a different age where if you fall in love, you never tell her how you feel. So there's a clue. But then by the last verse, it's the government has been <laughs> fooling us. Like it does not seem thematically related. That's an ongoing situation, is it not? <laughs> you know, if you think the government's actually working for you and doing the right thing, then you're entitled to your opinion. But I always think they're out to sort their own agendas. But that's neither here nor there, really. But yeah, I thought that was, it was just being about this kind of, the fact that, I, you know, I didn't get my first album out until I was 33. You know, I've been playing in bands since I was 15 and getting precisely nowhere, playing around pubs and clubs in London and to anything from two people to 40 people. But we never got anywhere. We tried hard. I was in various bands. I was always writing songs. It just never happened. Maybe I wasn't good enough. I don't know at the time. You know, maybe it took me till I was 33 to be of a kind of quality that people would want to listen to. You know, when I was 33, I did my first album and I already kind of felt like I was older than everyone else. I mean, imagine how I feel now, you know, but back then, when I, I suppose when I did Coming Round, was that 91 or 92? 92 is when the album was released anyway, but... Well, if it was 92, then I was already 39 years old. It was at the beginning of my career and I was already knocking 40. So I kind of felt like it's taken me a bit of time to catch up, you know, and that's really what it is, you know, coming around, you know, the way that I kind of operated and looked at things was like a bloke who who was 20 years older than everyone else, you know, and it takes you a bit of time. And I'm still like that. You know, I still look at a mobile phone and think it's a kind of, whoa, this is a bit modern. And I, oh, gosh, you can do things on it. that I, Oh, God, you can get the internet on the mobile. Whoa, that's exciting. 
So, you know, because I'm an old git, you know, you can't deny your age. You can actually hear all your own albums at Bandcamp streaming, including the Room 13 stuff. So people can decide for themselves if you were talented as a younger person. Cause I, I really enjoyed those, those Von, so you got the Von Trapp family album and the, uh, a couple Room 13 things up there. Even those, you know, the Von Trapp family was my first kind of band that recorded stuff, really. But, you know, when the Von Trapp family came out, I was already late 20s, you know. I was playing in a band in 1968, but we never recorded anything. I wasn't a quick beginner. It took a long time to get anywhere for me. I was a slow mover, you know. Not that I'm not grateful. I certainly am, you know. I just have, I mean, It sounds like I'm moaning, but I'm not. You know, the fact is that I've actually managed to have a pretty you know, lucky time in music where I, you know, people are interested in what I do. And, you know, you're phoning me from America to talk to me. So that's something I never thought would happen. You know, and I've played with people I never thought I'd play with and gone places I never thought I'd go and sold records. And, you know, it's like what I always dreamt of as a kid, you know, but it just took a long time to happen, you know. All you have to do is record 22 albums of (laughs) very long. (laughs) All listeners, go ahead. Yeah. Sooner or later, they'll give up and go, all right, we'll listen to it. We'll buy it. It's interesting to hear you say that because I was reflecting on just reading about how you structure your professional life, that I'm very envious in terms of just the the do-it-yourself nature. You know, not only are you recording all the parts yourself and, you know, on some of your albums, you were entirely engineering, which is something... You know, I was trying to do even back in high school, but sort of have discovered as I've gone on how much better it is to have somebody else working the knobs who is an actual professional at doing this and can EQ things properly. Yeah, it's a great help. A lot of it was born out of necessity. You know, I mean, the reason I recorded my own stuff and played all the instruments was a, I didn't have enough money to go in the studio at the time all the people I'd played with didn't want to play it anymore no label was ever slightly interested in what I offered them you know and believe me you know back in the 70s I was trying hard you know I was going around to see Virgin and A&M and all those in London I must have seen 20 record labels and they all said go away in certain terms I didn't have an option if I wanted to record music i had to do it myself because no one else was going to do it for me and am i right that you're kind of support this effort through actually running a used record vinyl store i've been doing that for about the last five years or so but it's you know it's a lifelong hobby you know i've started buying records when i was five years old and and i've still got you know last train to san fernando by johnny duncan and the bluegrass boys first record i bought i must have been four when i bought it with my pocket money or something when i was tiny little kid you know a a bit weird you know i was buying pop records at four when most people would be kind of having toys but I was always into music you know and I've always done a bit of dabbling in selling vinyl you know I I had a job and that kind of went up the river and and then I kind of had my musical career but in the space between having a nine to five job and doing the first Bevis album I was doing record fairs going around the country selling secondhand vinyl and you know I was doing it online when I needed a bit of dough you know in my little time of the seven years when I wasn't making records, I was doing a bit of online record dealing because I've always done it and I still do and I love it. It's fun, you know, music, football, girls, you know, what else could you want? 
So it doesn't seem a coincidence that when you got rid of the nine to five is when you were started cranking out these albums. They seem fairly incompatible activities that even if it's not taking up all your time, it saps your energy. I've never really succumbed to the work ethic, you know, unless it's something I want to do. You know, you know, I left home when I was, what, I think 18 and had a flat and had to pay me rent and you have to eat and stuff. So, you know, I had to have a job, you know, I had to make money, you know, you've got to be pragmatic about these things, you know, but I never really felt like that was for me. You know, <laughs> you spend too much time there. I had a job as a photograph librarian at the Greater London Council for a few years, which was probably the most interesting job I ever had because I've got all might have had some terrible jobs, but that was quite interesting, you know, and I thought, well, I'm interested in this. I'm interested in the history of London and old photographs, and it's great. And I might even choose to do it one day a month, but five days a week? Jesus Christ, I wouldn't want to play the guitar. For, well, I do play five days. I wouldn't want to record five days a week or play football five days a week, you know. So let alone going and do some god-awful job for five days a week. It sounds like, you know, greatest nightmare of all time, you know. So, yeah, as soon as I could figure out a way of not having a nine to five, my life changed for the better immeasurably. Well, let's switch back to just some of the specifics about coming around. So I see on the on the demo here, there's actually some interesting elements. You know, the main guitar part that's going on behind the verses that didn't even make it to the final thing. There's kind of this slightly yearning thing that you know is reaching up. You're playing on the higher strings, which I'm not hearing. You know, it's more straight ahead strumming on the eventual version. I guess at this point, when you're doing a demo, that's pretty much exactly what you were doing to actually create the finished product for your first few albums. Yeah, I, I guess it is, yeah. If you didn't like the new studio method, here's here's the old version, you know, the way it would have been. You know, they're similar, but they're not the same. You know, there's obvious differences, you know, limitation on on how many tracks you can use. Me on drums, so that's not as good. But then maybe sometimes, you know, the spontaneity of a kind of when you're doing your first take of a guitar break comes out better than the final version because you were kind of, it was still exciting, you know, but by the time you played it 12 times, it's not that exciting anymore, you know. But, you know, I don't know, really. You know, I think we're looking into it a bit too deeply because all it is is, is a song with me playing a guitar solo on it. And I guess it's up to the listener to go, well, I prefer the demo or actually I like the finished version better. I don't really mind. They're both there. Yeah, the original version, the playing sounds a little more, I don't know, Neil Youngy or something. might have been a bit less refined you know which is always good but i really like the sound i've tried to use it in some of my bands that and and the final version where you've got acoustic on one side and then just an ungodly electric you know more distorted than any sound that you use nowadays that i've heard (laughs) 
probably down to the fact that I had this really nice old overdrive pedal and it kind of went wrong and have never got another one like it and it was really good. And don't ask me what it was because I'm totally non-clued in with things like foot pedals and equipment. I don't know anything about them. They they either sound good or they don't. And this one sounded really good and it broke and so I never got another one. That's my excuse anyhow. When you introduced the riff at the very beginning of the song, like I can't even hear right away what notes you're trying to play because it's such a thick distortion. You know, it just sounds like reflective harmonics or something. It's a pretty cool effect. Well, it's a ninth, isn't it? Um, you know, the, the, it's, a, it's an E minor and you're playing a ninth with the, you know, on the solo with the F sharp. And it was a kind of C ninth as the second thing, you know. So you, it was a kind of chord that, you know, with a kind of D chucked in and a C. You can manage it, I'm sure. Quite a few times in the song comes to a complete stop. You know, it's fairly unusual that when you're resolving the thing, and now we'll go ahead. And I don't know if the tempo is actually changing. You know, there, it seems like there's definitely was not a metronome going on here. <laughs> I was kind of t- tapping it out. It kind of speeds up a little bit for the. No, definitely not. Definitely not. I'm, I mean, I rarely use a click track. You know, when I was working at home, I used to often do the drums first because then I'd have a click track which would be the drums you know so I'd be singing the song in my head and playing the drums and and kind of having little clues that I could edit out you know like going one two three four drums come in you know you'd have the kind of drums laid down before anything else and then it kind of stayed in rhythm because if you've done a guitar track and it's not quite in rhythm then playing drums to it is really difficult or obnoxiously as I've done several times in my younger days handing it to a drummer and saying lay something down on this thing that I put last night Good luck. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the same thing, same thing applies, you know. And Martin, God rest his little punky socks, he didn't kind of hold a true rhythm all the time. I mean, he was a fantastic drummer, but, you know, he wasn't right on the nail. He'd speed up and slow down a bit. So these things would have been recorded definitely without click tracks. And if there's a bit of variation in the tempo, then that's just the way it was. Certainly not meant to be that way, but certainly, but it didn't matter that it was that way. All right, let's talk about the solo. <laughs> so the in the original version, it still was pretty long. It went through the eight-bar pattern five times, I counted. But when we get to the final version, it's 13 times <laughs> through that eight-bar pattern, <laughs> which is... I don't know. It's just, I guess it just felt good, you know? You're recording the rhythm section first, right? So you don't even know, you're not even playing the solo and kind of feeling swept up in it. You're just playing with the band. If I remember rightly, I mean, you're going back, you know, quite a long time now. I recorded that one, just me and Martin. I don't think there was a bass player on it. I think I was playing bass on it. If I remember rightly, I think we would have recorded a basic backing track with rhythm guitar and drums and then added bass, leaving a space to put a solo in, which would have been however long it was, and then play a solo. And then if the solo was good throughout, then it would have remained that length. But if it, I think if I'd gone off or it sounded a bit crap, then it, we could have um, cut it down a bit, you know, edited a little section out. So... I kind of left myself a big space to play in, and then what you heard on the record was what I liked. And if you're editing, that's actually getting a razor on the tape, right? <laughs> would it have been tapes? Yeah, it would have been. It would have been on a two-inch master. Yeah, we probably would have had to have done it with a razor, yeah, on an editing block, or taken a little section out or something like that. Oh, it's a long time ago, but as it, as it happened, I don't think we did do that because I played all the way through on what the space that I'd left, and I was happy with it, so I think we just left it. Yeah, I actually started on one of those Tascam Porta studios myself, recorded a few albums in that format. You can do a lot with bouncing around, but in terms of actually just shortening it, actually just editing it to make it shorter, 
<laughs> That's something that I've only started doing recently. <laughs> when I did my masters, I used to kind of have the quarter inch, you know, masters off the Tascam, and I used to have an editing block and a razor blade, and I'd be cutting the tapes in half. I mean, it makes me shudder to think what I was doing with the kind of only version I had. And you get a razor blade and cut it in half, and you go, oh, God. But, you know, now, of course, with our modern techniques and all that, you don't need to do all that. It's almost as painful as when you're working with the four-track and you record nice drums, and maybe they're even taking up three tracks, and then you bounce them to one track, maybe. <laughs> At least I was doing that, so I wasn't even in stereo necessarily. And then record over it... <laughs> rather than somehow bounce to another four track so that all the old stuff is retained. No, it's actually just destroying it. <laughs> well, on my demos, all the drums were on one track. I mean, they were recorded on one track. I had a hook in the ceiling and I hung the microphone above the kit and kind of tried around where it sounded best. And I'd hang it kind of down so it was somewhere between the snare and the first rack tom. It'd be hanging down which was a bit awkward because if I tried to do a roll, I'd hit the wire of the microphone hanging down. So then sometimes I'd put it on a kind of mic stand with a mic pointing towards the bass pedal and it would kind of come in between the snare and the rack tom. And that way you kind of got a reasonable sound for, you know, so all the stuff on the early albums is just one microphone in a drum kit. Well, and it's funny that you're still even categorized now if you look up the band as the genre is lo-fi, like guided by voices. Yeah, I suppose I am the, you know, what is it, the lo-fi father or whatever they call it. One of the pioneers of bad recording. Which that was not a stylistic choice. It's not like you're still doing that now. It's not, that's... <laughs> just ineptitude really <laughs> not owning more mics i understand that <laughs> yeah, i only had two mics and one of them was a vocal mic what are you supposed to do with it besides i didn't know what i was doing you know i'd never done any recording before i had no idea it was just kind of like finding my way and thought well that sounds okay stick it in there i never di'd anything i just sort of put a microphone in front of a cabinet and played i didn't know what i was doing and over the years i've kind of still haven't got much idea what i'm doing really so when you're doing like the von trapp family recordings my mate barry was working in a studio he had a job in the studio and he got a bit of downtime and so we actually went into his studio in called a place called studio republic in pinner i think it was and we went up there and we had about two hours and we did the von trapp family single in there on, on barry's time you know that was hardly a model for like learning your uh, studio no we were totally no idea what we were doing. I, I remember taking, because I wanted a certain sound on the Von Trapp family single, I took my harmonium to Pinner. I mean, ridiculous. At an old church harmonium, we put it in a van and took it to Pinner. You can hear the pedals of the harmonium banging away as I was kind of playing it. So, yeah, it, it wasn't the most refined recording session, you know. I've never been too bothered about that kind of stuff, you know. Having done all this yourself, are you pretty hands-on now, when you're in the public studio, or, or is it still... We haven't used Studio Republic since 1979, you know, so up until the last album, I've been using a place called uh, Gold Dust in South London, and the guy who runs it is a guy called Mark Dawson, and he's been really helpful, and I met Dave Palmer, who produced the last album, and the couple engineered them through Mark, and he was working as an engineer in Mark's studio, and they've been great, so I, you know, I've been working with Dave for the last few albums, it's a nice, comfortable thing. I just leave it up to him, really, because he knows what I'm doing, and I don't have to worry about all the complicated technical side of things. I just make a racket, and he records it, really. That is nice. Where to put the mics? I'm just going to play. Just put them somewhere. <laughs> yeah, he can do that. He puts the mic in the right place. You know, I don't have to worry about it now, you know. 
Well, let's cue up our last song here, Portobello Man from Valedictory Songs 2000. Do you want to give us a little introduction what this song is about? This is one of the standout tunes. I was very pleased with this one, you know, but it came out just right. You know, the idea was, I always think that the hippie gets a bad deal, you know, because when punk came out, they had this big thing of, oh, never trust a hippie, or oh, hippies, oh, he's an old hippie, and all that stuff. And I used to think, well, you got it wrong, mate. You know, it's not the hippies who you want to have a go at. It's the bloody public schoolboys who formed Genesis and Yes and ruined it for everyone. They're the ones you want to have a pop at. You know, the old hippies who were actually doing something constructive, you know, the Mick Farrens to this world, who are actually out there causing problems and running around protesting and getting things done. You know, not these self-satisfied rich kids who had 45 synthesizers and a gong. They're the, you know, nitwits who sit around swimming pools coked up. That's the mob <laughs> that they should be having a go. And I was thinking that, you know, when you kind of look back in history, you know, and you kind of dig up the bones of the dinosaurs, you know, and you dig up Portobello Man, you know, I was kind of like playing on like Neanderthal Man or whatever. You kind of dig up the bones. You don't want to rewrite history and make them out to be Rick Wakeman or something because he wasn't a hippie, you know. And I was saying, you know, the hippies were good. I wasn't a hippie. I wasn't quite old enough, you know, but I admired them. And I like, I still look back at them and think, yeah, you were doing the right thing. You were actually trying to do something right. Uh, you know, when prog hit in its full force, when you had Emerson, Lake and Palmer and Genesis and all that lot, you know, who were wealthy beyond the dreams of Croesus. I didn't think that had anything to do with rock and roll. And that is certainly not what the punks, the punks should have been having a go at them. And not the people who were very much like the punks in the 60s, you know. And I thought that was a complete misguided attack. And I kind of wrote Portobello Man to kind of stand up for the hippie and give it a bit of historical kind of references as if you were doing it in an archaeological way. So there you go. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you and more more of a pleasure. I would not advise people that as the best way to take in your work is to binge it over two weeks. I think I'd only heard like two of your albums before that time. And now I, I didn't quite get through all the acid jam material, but other than that, I've listened to everything often more than once. I think, I think you're okay. You know, you, you do as much or as little as you want. You know, there, there's no law that says you have to listen to anything of mine. So I'm always grateful when people do, you know, it is the necessity of the, th- I, I just, you know, going through these albums and very, very consistently, just something will take me aback and I'll, okay, I'm only going to listen to one more song, but then the next song is, more remarkable than that. So I don't know. I really, you know, it's definitely not just one style. And in fact, there's whole styles of your work, you know, in things in the, in the roughly Hendrix category that we didn't even touch here. No, indeed not. But I'm sure in another few years, you can, we can do this again. Thanks for being interested.
Thanks so much to Nick, a very inspirational model here. You don't need someone to give you permission to make music. Just freaking do it. Don't sweat it. Just make it part of your life. Make it so it's as natural as breathing. And if you're smart, you can write lyrics, you can write melodies, your material is good. Over time, you can gain a fan base. So you can outsource more of the engineering, attract talented people to play live with you. But, of course, I don't want to make it sound like just anybody can do what Nick does. Nick is obviously an incredible individual And this may be the find that I am most excited about through this podcast. Many of these folks, of course, like XTC, I've been listening to for years and years. It's only through my previous guest, Anton Barbeau, that I knew anything about the Bevis Frond at all. And I cannot recommend them too highly. There is a lot of material. Some of it is 20-minute jams that may or may not be the kind of thing you want to have going on in the background. But man, he can write a pop song and has a very distinctive guitar style that I appreciate very much. Again, check him out at bevisfrond.bandcamp.com. My next episode I'm very excited about, I will be releasing my interview with Roxy Music guitarist Phil Manzanera. He's put out a lot of diverse solo material since his Roxy Music days, and one of his songs was sampled by Kanye and Jay-Z, which one of the songs that I'm talking about with him is his cover of that song that had his own sample in it. So check that and many other things out at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I would like to continue to push for people that enjoy this to contribute a few pennies to allow it to continue to happen. Please go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. Even if you are already a partially examined life citizen, you already have been doing things to support this podcast indirectly. You making a pledge for this podcast will make it much more likely that this will continue to happen through another 75 episodes. All right, I hope you are as inspired as I am by Nick. Until next time, keep on musicking. This is Martin Zemeyer signing off. <laughs>